the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Aubrey, good to have you back. Thanks. Good to be here. And now you've been out, and so you've probably not spent a lot of time watching the news. You and I were just talking off off air, and, and you hadn't heard yet of this story with Alec Baldwin. I had no idea, so that tells you how disconnected I've been. This was a shocking, very sad story. Yes, maybe for other people who have uh, kind of... Uh, been away from social media or the news. Uh, the, the story is this Alec Baldwin, producer and actor of this movie called Rust, and they were, um, filming out kind of, uh, almost there. It's you clearly a Western movie. So they're out West and, uh, through a, um, a chain, I would say of both tragic and, uh, events and also just, Things that people did wrong. Alec Baldwin mm. thought he was handling a gun that was loaded with blanks and somehow there was live ammunition mm. in it. And he tragically uh, and uh, inadvertently shot a somebody on the crew and she died mm. and also injured the director of the movie. And you hear oh this goodness. story, Aubrey, and, and I. And you're just uh, you just can't believe that stuff like this happens. Like uh, our producer was asking, like, how are real guns even? I didn't even know real guns are used on movie sets. Like, I thought everything was just a prop that none of this could ever happen. Absolutely. Like, you sort of think safety first is like the top rule. And in this day and age, when we have the ability to make historically realistic props or future, you know, future realistic pop props, why in the world would you be using any real gun or any real ammo? That's the yeah. big question. Why is there real loaded ammo on set? Yeah, and that's there's supposed to be many ways that they figure out. I was actually reading a story this morning uh, where there was an idea that possibly the gun had been used by some of the crew while on a break to go like target shooting. Oh. And they don't know that everyone's guessing right now, but at the very least, it is just an immense tragedy in which yeah, people is. didn't do their job correctly. And it ended up in a 42 year old woman, uh, needlessly, obviously losing her life. And so, uh, that is the real tragedy. And it reminds you, you start to hear like, uh, statements from her husband with a young child oh, yeah. and, and also, like, that's Sad. the huge tragedy, but the collateral damage of somebody like Alec Baldwin, who's going to need to live with this for the rest of his life. Oh, can you imagine? Oh. No, and the other people on the set who were there. So just a tragic story. Mm. Uh, but, Aubrey, as often happens in our culture, sadly, um, and this is what I want to talk about right now, because there's not much more to say about the tragedy. It's sure. tragedy. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the ultimate tragedy is in the light loss of a uh, cinematographer. Her name is Helena Hutchins. Uh, and that's the ultimate tragedy. But Alec Baldwin, as you know, he has been a big critic of former President Trump. He is outspoken about a lot of things. He actually played President Trump on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, and so 
many people, uh, especially on the uh, supporters of Donald Trump, they don't like Alec Baldwin, right? Like that goes without saying they don't. And I think this is showing some of the ugliness and some of the, I would say, lack of uh, a disconnect from reality that way too many people have. Like, here's what happened. Uh, she's died. A person has died. And yes. yet Twitter lit up with people making fun of Alec uh, Baldwin. No, no, and I no, would no, say no. that it, it crescendoed, hopefully crescendoed, uh, yesterday when it came out that Donald Trump Jr., is selling to raise money on his website. <gasps> he is selling T-shirts that say this, uh, oh. guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. Come on. Are you kidding me? I am not making that this That is up. the most tacky, dishonorable thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, is there, I mean, is there nothing sacred? Like a woman is killed accidentally and right. we're we're turning it into this? Oh, I, this is disgusting to me. I'm sorry, Donald Trump Jr. I have no space for you or patience for you with this. I think that is repulsive. I just think, um, here's the deal. It'd be one thing if this was just about Donald Trump, but a lady lost her life. And so Uh I don't, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Like you could be the biggest Donald Trump supporter out there or be uh, somebody who dislikes him. Like I know that former president Donald Trump is a lightning rod, but this isn't about him. Exactly. This isn't even really about Alec Baldwin at this point. Uh, But this is about a young mother who was senselessly and needlessly killed and then to use it to make fun of Alec Baldwin. What, what, here's the question. What must that woman's husband be thinking? Oh my gosh. And how like bitter must your soul be that you're willing to do something like that? I also think, and I mean, I don't care one way or the other about Alec Baldwin. Okay. This is not in defense of him or whatever, but he, like you said, he now has to live with that grief, that guilt, this, that, that reality of what happened. And so even just to like make light of that is the most inhumane thing. Like, I just feel like I, I, I am, I, I, like I said before, the word I keep thinking is repulsed. Like I am repulsed yeah. by this as a reaction and then to try to make money off of it. I mean, there's so many layers of it that are just so inhumane and undignified and mean this is plain mean period that's a great point i other people and i you know you don't like to give uh too much um notoriety to these people but republican senate candidate jd vance immediately within 24 hours of the incident wrote on twitter jokingly let trump back on we need alec baldwin tweets uh Mm. and other people have no and so this is my point people out there uh, Lauren Boebert, uh, from Colorado. Uh, she said that everybody on their, on that set should now have bright yellow t-shirts and say, my hands are up. Please don't shoot me. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so anyway, I, that's not no much the point except to say this. If you're a follower of Christ and aren't repulsed by that, you have a problem. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just don't know how else to more clearly say this. The death of a 42 year old young mom. Uh, who was doing only her job, regardless of who accidentally pulled the trigger. If you see that as an opportunity to make political points and to tear somebody down and to uh, even try to get some laughs on Twitter, 
uh, you've lost your soul on some you've level. You've lost right? your way. I mean, this yeah. is everything that's wrong with our society right now. This is like what we talk about on the show all the time. Like we we cannot do this to one another, especially in tragedies like this. Yeah. And so I don't really, quite frankly, care about people like Donald Trump Jr. or right, the other people right, who use right. this to raise money and mm-hmm. use this to mock into uh, this tragedy. But what I what I do care about is people who make up the church. Like if you, you saw go. this online and you liked it, if you saw this online and laughed, if you were like making Alec, you know, jokes about this within 20, I think you really need to look in the mirror. And again, this isn't a Republican Democrat. Exactly. Thing. This exactly. is an empathy thing, right? Yes, this is an go. empathy thing. There you go. And if we can't have empathy when a young mom dies, then we're lost as a society. We yep. can't have empathy yep. over anything. Yeah. And so if you don't find empathy, including for Alec Baldwin in this, who didn't know that he had a loaded gun, like right. I can't imagine how people's hearts get so dark and so cold to get to that point. Mm-mm, and me neither, Brian. if you find yourself there, then heaven help you. And I think you really need to look in the mirror because it says a lot about you and it says a lot about our culture. Well, just needed to get that off my chest, Aubrey. I saw that yesterday. I was like, you have got to oh, be kidding terrible. me. Oh, it's terrible. Absolutely, You've Brian. got to be kidding me. Coming up next, friend of the show, Tyler Huckabee, senior editor at Relevant Magazine, is going to join us. We're going to talk about one of the most uh, common Christian objections to the COVID-19 vaccine. Tyler wrote about that at Relevant Magazine. And he also wrote about the John Gruden story about it's not just cancel culture, it's just reaping what you sow. And we're excited to talk about those with Tyler Huckabee next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So glad to have you with us today, and we are thrilled to be joined by, you know, we got friends of the show, and then we've got good friends of the show, and one of those guys is Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, how you doing today, man? Well, I was doing really well. I had no idea that I was considered a good friend of the show. You are. That made my heart warm. I'm way better now than I was before. I mean, you're such a good friend that if we need money, we're calling you. Like, we're going that far with you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome to call. You're welcome to call. I will always pick up. I don't know if I'll be able to send you any money, but but I will talk to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Tyler, I know people probably recognize you, but for those who don't, why don't you reintroduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? I live in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife and my dog. I'm the senior editor of Relevant Magazine. I've been over there for a few years now. Also, you can hear me on the Relevant Podcast every now and then, where I show up talking about some of the news that we're covering on the site. And, uh, of course, always uh, appreciate people who subscribe to the our digital magazine as well, where we put out as many articles as we can from the kind of topics that you all cover here on the show. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's great to have you back on, Tyler. One of those things you wrote about at Relevant Magazine, here's what I appreciate about it, you. you. You like to dive into the stuff that really gets people arguing across the uh, across the dinner table, as we say, <laughs> at Thanksgiving this year or whatever. Uh, and so uh, a week or two ago, you wrote an article with this headline, addressing one of the most common Christian objections <laughs> to the COVID-19 vaccine. Again, this is as hot button a topic as there can possibly be. So uh, tell us what is that one most common Christian objection and then what? how do you address it? Yeah, so I, the reason this came up is because I saw a lot of different people talking about, and there are obviously many, many different objections to the vaccine that people have, and, and I won't be getting into all of them. I'm not qualified to get into all of them here right now. But one that came up a lot for Christians 
is this idea that uh, that abortion or aborted fetuses are used in the creation of it. This is something that you hear a lot, and it can kind of conjure this idea of like a, a very gruesome, almost conveyor belt situation, mm. which is how these vaccines are put together. So I talked to a few medical experts about this and did a deep dive into some of the research around it. And what I found was, was quite interesting, and I would encourage people to go read this piece over at relevantmagazine.com. But what I found is it, it's it, I, I do understand uh, for Christians who are morally opposed to abortion why this would be a, a very, very concerning thing about taking the vaccine, perhaps a reason to abstain or boycott it and protest to, uh, to stand on their ethics. And I, I definitely get that. But I want to point out, and I strive to do this in the piece a little bit, that this is another issue that is a little bit morally complicated. It is true that back in the 60s, there was an aborted fetus of a young aborted baby girl that was used to create a cell lining that has been used for for many, many different uh, medications since the time of its actual implementation. This has been used for vaccines like the Ebola vaccine, tuberculosis. Uh, we use it in a lot of uh, in a lot of everyday, like over-the-counter medications as well. And yes, it was used for a couple of the COVID nineteen vaccines that have been approved. Um, and I understand how that can be a little bit concerning. Uh, my point in the article itself was that this is another moral issue that's a little bit complicated. It's great we do these things all the time in uh, in modern life. The food we eat often comes from farms full of inhumane animal living conditions that are very stomach-churning. The Mm. clothes we wear are made by people who aren't paid enough to survive. It can be very ethically complicated. Uh, There's prison issues, obviously. The prisons that we put people away in this country often have issues. Entertainment we consume, cars we drive, often the screens that we use for our phones. There's a lot of evil in the world, and being alive doesn't invite a lot of cooperation with that evil. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, we need to be very, very careful about how we engage with it. And I would encourage us to note that sometimes uh, there is a greater moral good to be had by learning how to do, how to sort of wade into these conversations. And I would hope, hope, choose the more morally upright one instead of just abstaining from it altogether. Yeah, yeah. Are you... I know you're a reporter, so you're not actually usually asked your opinion, but I'm going to do this because you're plugged into the Christian world. You're talking to people all the time. Are you or the people you talk to, like you said, you talk to a bunch of doctors. Are they at all surprised that so much of the evangelical world kind of seems to be the ones that are most against the vaccine? Is there a surprise out there or was that expected? I think that there have been, and some of the people that we have interviewed, and I would include among this uh, Dr. Francis Collins, who until very recently was the head of the NIH here in the U.S., I think there was a little bit of surprise on this part, I think, just because uh, I, I won't use any names, because I think most of the people I talked to are off the record on this. Gotcha. But just because vaccines are so common, uh, we, we use vaccines so much, and it has never been a huge subject of controversy before for most Christians to use vaccines. There were little pockets, anti-vaccine pockets, but I don't think anybody expected the level of yeah. pushback that these vaccines have gotten and continue to get more and more of as, you know, as mandates become more and more common here in the U.S. So, yes, I would say there have been people who have expressed some surprises, particularly among Christian physicians, yep. you know, the, these people who have devoted their life both to the church and to medicine, who thought they kind of understood the people who they sat next to in the church pews and, and <laughs> have been surprised to now find the work that they're involved in to be a subject of so much distrust among their brothers and sisters. Interesting, interesting. Tyler, one thing I appreciate about you is you write so much so we can just fly all over the place. Uh, you wrote an article 
entitled this, there may never be a better time to pursue your passion. There's this thing that economists see right now. They're calling the great resignation. People in record numbers resigning their jobs. Why would you uh, kind of posit that um, that there may never be a better time to pursue your passion than right now? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed putting this piece together because, like you said, I feel like I write a lot about a lot of negative stuff. And this I actually feel quite positive about in a number of ways. I think that in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, as we're sort of slowly emerging from some of the worst parts of the pandemic here in the U.S., you hear a lot of gloom and doom from people about the job market, right? You see, you see a lot of viral memes about like help wanted signs that go unanswered for weeks and McDonald's can't get enough people hired to keep the doors open and things like that. And I, I'm, those things are obviously happening. But I also think what we're looking at right now is sort of a shift in the idea of what work is supposed to be, mm. uh, how central work should be to the lives of Americans. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And you can read the piece to hear me explain what some of those are. But I do think that one of the reasons that some of these places are struggling to find people to work for them is that people don't want to work for at really miserable jobs for long mm-hmm. periods of time for not a lot of money. And they're ready to start saying, well, what if I'm going to be working for 40 hours a week or in many cases more than that, then what would be a healthy way for me to devote that time to that doesn't involve increasing my own personal struggle and misery, but can maybe actually be rewarding and good. And right now, obviously, for a few reasons, there's a little more of a social safety net for people who are interested in taking a little bit of time to reassess their work-life priorities. And I would really encourage people to do that. I I don't know when you're going to get a better opportunity than right now when there's a little bit of money that is available to you from the federal government There is an understanding right now among the general populace that we're taking a little bit of a a breather and a reset, uh, professionally speaking, kind of collectively in our career. And there's just also a personal understanding that you've been locked down for a year. You have a little bit bit better understanding maybe of yourself and of what you want and of what you're good at and of what brings you life after some time away from the usual grind that we had in 2019. And that creates a really excellent time to do that sort of reset. Man, that's awesome. That's good. You can read these articles we're referencing at relevantmagazine.com. That's relevantmagazine.com. You can also follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Huckabee. That's at Tyler Huckabee. We said earlier that you like to jump into things that cause people to argue. So let's talk about cancel culture. You wrote recently about um, former Raiders coach and former uh, Monday Night Football analyst, well-known football coach by the name of John Gruden. Uh, he is out of a job, uh, and many people are ascribing it to cancel culture. So before we get into cancel culture and whether that's actually what happened, help people understand the John Gruden story, Who people who may not understand it. Sure. And, and it's, uh, I'll deal with this very briefly because it, it happened a little while ago now, so it's just a quick refresher. The NFL was looking into the Washington football team and its owner, Daniel Snyder. So this started out, this investigation really didn't have anything to do with John Gruden at the beginning of it. Yeah. But that investigation did open up thousands of emails 
which turned up Gruden's communications, which included many instances of racist, misogynistic, and homophobic language that were mostly sent to former Washington football team president Bruce Allen. Mm. Now, Allen was fired a couple of years ago, and then uh, following the revelations in these emails, which were pretty, which really were pretty sick. I, I, well, this is a family show, so mm-hmm. I, I won't get into them here. But they were not good language, and he resigned following the New York Times report. So that's the bare bones uh, story of what happened there. And so you asked, was it cancel culture uh, or was this just reaping what you sow? Uh, Help us understand that difference because cancel culture has become kind of this buzz phrase, this buzzword. We use it on this show all the time, but uh, kind of with it is kind of like, oh, he lost his job because of cancel culture, right? So help us differentiate and understand cancel culture versus what you say in this headline, just reaping what we sow for bad behavior or bad language. Yeah, and I think this is one of my <laughs> this is one of my hotter takes. We'll say this is this is one of my less popular p- opinions, and uh, so I want to say this very carefully. But I do have a hard time with how nebulous the phrase "cancel culture" is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we use it for somebody who can, is getting arrested for crimes they committed, mm-hmm. or is resigning from their job because they were bad bosses. And sometimes we use that because people are just being mean to you on the internet for a day or two. So it's just very broad vague phrase that we can hurl at almost anything. And I'm not saying there aren't times where people are sort of unjustly pilloried by uh, on social media, where that, that obviously does happen. We've all seen examples of that. And I think many of us would say we've been the subject of that occasionally. Mm. What I am saying is that it's not nearly as common or as frequent as a lot of people seem to think it is when they start talking about cancel culture. In this particular case, Gruden was a bad boss. Mm. Anybody who had these sorts of communications exposed about their employees would and should face consequences for what happened. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, especially for people like Gruden who have a lot of money, who are in a position with a lot of influence and authority. They don't always face consequences, which I think is why the story struck us as kind of strange, but it should. And in this case, you know, he, he got fired for something that none of us, none of us would not face consequences for. So I want to encourage us just to be a little more careful about how quickly we invoke this idea of cancel culture to make sure that we're not just using it to describe any sort of uh, any sort of consequences that people face, because people should face consequences. We all should, and, yeah. and, and we all will at some point, we believe, in eternity, but mm-hmm. we wouldn't say that God is, a, is uh, doing cancel culture when somebody just reaps the results of bad decisions they made. And I don't think that's what's happening here either. And I think it happens on the balance quite a bit less than a lot of people seem to think it does. Yeah. And so help us with the church. How do we speak of consequences and cancel culture yeah. and you reap what you sow versus grace and mercy? And, you know, we're supposed to be people kind of living with love and grace that Jesus has shown us. I don't think the church does a good job at kind of figuring out how those two things hold hands. You got any thoughts on that? Oh, it's so complicated. And I think you're exactly right that this is that the church finds itself in such a difficult spot here. Um, but in my opinion, I don't think it's contradictory to believe that, say, in Gruden's case, he can be forgiven for what he did and that he's just not fit for a leadership position right now. Mm. I think you can have a restoration to fellowship without having a restoration to position. People can face consequences for what they've done, but still experience the grace and community 
of spiritual forgiveness at both a personal level, which is where, you know, you do something bad to me and uh, you say you're sorry and I forgive you. So our relationship is restored. And at a more communal level where say there's a failure of leadership among a pastor or something like that. And those situations can be very, very complicated. And sometimes they do involve very serious consequences and they should. But I think this is where, you know, we are just as a culture, we're not cut out for how complicated these conversations often have to be. And for how nuanced they have to be and for how to both protect uh, victims and survivors of abuse who, who really need to have a safe place to go, uh, like a church, mm-hmm. and also letting the people who know who did these things, that there, is, uh, that there is forgiveness available to them, like there is for all of us, because of what Jesus has done. So I'm not saying it's not tough. It definitely yeah. is. I just don't think that cancel culture is helpful in when, when it comes to having those types of conversations. Yeah, and sometimes it's best to think about how do we talk to our kids. Like I regularly tell my kids, I love you, I forgive you, but there's consequences for your actions. Like they're, uh, yeah. you have to deal with what you've done. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not sure I've asked you yet. Uh, a little bit of a curveball because it's nothing that you've written sure. about. What do you make of, whether you've listened to it or not, what do you make of this whole uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast phenomenon and oh. just this idea in, in Christendom right now of kind of, uh, yeah, let's just go there. What do you make of that Mark Driscoll podcast and and how widely popular it's been and kind of dissected it's been? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Well, I think yeah. there's. Uh, I I have listened to it. I'm I, I'm listening to it as it comes out. I can't wait for the next episode of Me it. Me too. Me it too. It obviously covers a a time in my. I was in, in college during the kind of what we'll call like Mark Driscoll salad days. So I was very uh, aware of him and very familiar with his work and with his writing. And then obviously I'm very aware of, of what happened in the aftermath, which is being covered in the podcast. I think that its success is owing to a few things. I think the first one is it's just a good podcast. It's, That's right. It's very well reported. It's very the production is very very good. I understand why people are just drawn to well done content at a professional level at a at a place of storytelling. And then I think the other one is this is a we live in a time where it seems like a lot of the church is facing sort of the chickens that are coming home to roost mm. for a lot of church spaces and institutions, both churches themselves and Christian nonprofits. And it's very difficult to understand that because we, we don't have a great metric for knowing what that looks like or how that happened or how did we get here in the case of some Christian institutions. They, at Relevant Magazine, we can't go a month without a story of some pastor falling or being mm-hmm. forced to resign or kicked out, and it's very, very sad. And so having a case like Driscoll's, which is so such a good microcosm of how this often happens and of what happened, helps us understand stories in our own lives and the own pastors we've seen fall and the own leaders we've, we've had to uh, reckon with as they've been uh, forced out for various reasons of leadership positions. So I think it's educational, and I think it resonates with people who are wondering, who are looking for a roadmap for their own, honestly, trauma that yeah. has come from their church experiences. That's a good word. I can't wait for the next one to come out. Hopefully it's this week. Me too. Uh, I Me do too. love it. Yeah, yeah, I'm with it. Absolutely. Tyler Huckabee, senior editor at Relevant Magazine, also the co-host of a podcast, the Cape Town Podcast. Uh, you can read him at relevantmagazine.com and also find him on Twitter at Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, it is always great having you on, man. Thanks for doing it again. Always. Thanks so much for talking to me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And as we often talk about on the show, Aubrey and I are both pastors. And so uh, we selfishly love to have on other pastors to talk about what's it like to be a pastor, to talk about the local church, all the craziness of the local church here during the pandemic. Uh, and with that in mind, we're excited to be joined by the lead teaching pastor at Community Evangelical Free Church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, also the author of a new book called Shepherd and Sheep, Essays on Loving and Leading in a Local Church. His name is Benjamin Verbacek. Benjamin, how you doing today, bud? Doing really good, Brian and Audrey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into all the stuff in this book and other things that you've written, why don't you just reintroduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's been great to be on a time or two before. But so my name again is Benjamin. I'm got a bunch of kids and I've been married a bunch of years <laughs> and uh, lead pastor of a, a very normalish uh, local church with, with <laughs> all sorts of wonderful things and all sorts of hard things. And we're we're in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so the middle of Pennsylvania. It's a capital city, but not not necessarily a huge one. And uh, I was <laughs> most prestigiously, I just retired as the middle school school cross country coach. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, so that was pretty time consuming. But uh, my son's running a small Christian school. You know, they're always wanting people to help. So yeah, it was yeah. a fun That's season. Great. That's great. Benjamin, I'm, I'm reading an excerpt right now on Amazon uh, from your new book. Again, the title is Shepherd and Sheep Essays on Loving and Leading at a Local Church. And this really stood out to me. Brian and I, like he has said before, are local pastors. And so I read this and I was like, oh, yep, I get it. <laughs> it says this, you're talking to your elder board. I told them I have learned one of two things. Either I'm not called to pastoral ministry or I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> what other option could there be? I asked. Ministry should not be so hard. I feel like after mm. 2020, 2021, a lot of pastors are saying that. Talk to us about what you meant when you wrote that. Oh, boy. Um, I feel like I should be on a counselor's couch <laughs> uh, of, of a radio show. But yeah, so th that was honestly written in the heart of the real thick of, of the lockdown and contemplating opening back up and what that meant uh, for in-person services. And so the, the, the problem for me, um, in addition to um, what everybody else was experiencing, and I don't want to say I'm unique in this, but I came into the pandemic already pretty tired. We had lost one of our lead pastors at our church, and uh, it was a little more work to replace him than I thought it would be. And mm -hmm. at the same time, had a sh shoulder surgery um, that was planned, but and then officiated five weddings, went through my ordination, and all of that led me to be pretty darn tired uh, before March of 2020. And so that was written in May, and I just was looking at the guys saying, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. Either I'm not supposed to do this or I'm doing it wrong, and that's how I felt at least. Yeah. And as Aubrey said, I think we all get that. All of our circumstances are unique, but kind of the common denominator for all of us as pastors is it's been really hard. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. been yeah. really hard. Uh, uh, Benjamin, I appreciate it, it, the title of your new book, kind of talking about shepherd and sheep, because that is kind of the biblical imagery that we get throughout this idea of, of shepherding and sheep. Why is that, do you think, such an important imagery for us to understand and us to hold on to? Oh, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, um, you know, it gives a sense of who the pastor is, which is first and foremost, a sheep. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, right, right. Right. Isn't it? The, the yes. expectation here is that I'm the shepherd and mm. so on, and you, you are shepherds. And, um, and that's true, but, but 
Peter describes us as having, you know, the, the over shepherd, which makes us under shepherds. Um, mm-hmm. We're just sheep first. And I think there's a real sweetness to not losing sight of that. And uh, if I could just say just maybe the origin story here for the book, I Please. just really collected Please, together. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I was on sabbatical this summer, which <laughs> based on what we were just talking about, you can assume was was probably needed. But um, <laughs> it was a time to just sit back and think and reflect and, and collect thoughts together. And, and there's this line in Galatians that Paul writes about those who are taught the word should share everything good thing with their teacher. And mm. the assumption is that, well, I'm the teacher of the word. You know, no one says more on Sundays than me generally. But I think this book to me was a way to say back to the church, you have taught me mm. what it means to be a sheep, what it means to be a shepherd, what it means to have God as our good shepherd. And so sort of it, it was largely just a gift back to my local church. And if others find benefit from it, uh, all the better. Mm. And what are some of the stories that you share? Maybe pick one or two, Benjamin, that really are kind of your favorite stories oh, in the oh, book. Man. Yeah, so you're picking on that that first one. It's called Bending the COVID Bow of Bronze, which was <laughs> this imagery from one of the Psalms and, and a book um, of Samuel and David speaking, where he just he has this line where he says, uh, the Lord enabled me to bend a bow of bronze. And we don't know whether that's a like a bow and arrow, whether it's a, an actual bow made of bronze and so no one could bend it or just a bow reinforced with bronze. And so for me, it was this metaphor for pastoral ministry that the Lord has help, helps us uh, to do something impossible that we wouldn't do on our own. So that's a favorite. I really tried to just collect um, an, a smorgasbord of things that would be interesting to our church. And um, some favorite ones are why we treat current events the way we do. Mm. Um, that one you know, people who hang around for a while come, I think, appreciated that essay because it explains, oh, that's what I experienced. And, and for us, the you know, the punchline is really we try to be light on current events as a gift, not as a cowardness or that we're uh, uh, unaware of what's happening. But just to remind people that 52 weeks a year, that's the word of the Lord that stands forever. So that's a favorite one in there, too. Yeah. How do you practically do that? Because I think a lot of pastors struggle with that. Uh, a lot of churches struggle with that. And, and you know, you start getting focused on the wrong things. How do you uh, practically build that into your church? And maybe what's uh, something other pastors can do to help build that into their congregation? Yeah, two very concrete ones. We, we, I'm not against topical preaching. Don't, don't hear that wrong. I, we, we do that at different times. But generally, the expectation is we're moving through books of the Bible, which sort of frees us from uh, the ability to be as nimble as perhaps other places. And I think that slowness is a good thing. The other thing would be um, our, what we would call pastor elders, the, the, the volunteer pastors and staff pastors of our church are actively involved. We, we, we really make our meetings more about people and problems than uh, decisions. They're, they're not just decision makers. So where that comes into play is they're really helpful in knowing the pulse of our church through the small groups they lead and what really are you know, whether it's CNN or Fox News, okay, they're telling us these things are important, but what really are the things that our church is experiencing? And I think getting that feedback is really helpful. Yeah. And uh, Benjamin, what do you hope readers will get as they read through the essays? Like, what is your sort of big goal for people who pick up this book and begin browsing through some of the stories you're sharing? Well, I, I don't want to scare people off with this reference, but uh, President, uh, former President Obama wrote a, his memoir about his first year. And he says in the, the introduction um, that he wants for all the power and pomp of presidency to know that it's a very ordinary job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I just think 
what the feedback I've received of the book so far is they're thankful that the current, this isn't a good metaphor because you draw the curtain back in the Wizard of Oz, like no one's really there <laughs> doing anything. <laughs> uh, but I mean that in a better way, that pulling the curtain back, what is it like to be a pastor who loves his sheep and also loves his family and has problems and has his own sin and is just trying to work that all out in the context of keeping his congregation attentive right. on what God is doing among us and, and, and making Jesus the hero. And so I think that to me is uh, the sort of favorite takeaways that people have shared with me. That's so good. The book again is Shepherd and Sheep, Essays on Loving and Leading in a Local Church. Uh, the author of that is Benjamin Verbacek. You can follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Verbacek. That's at Benjamin Verbacek. I should probably spell the last name. V-R-B-I-C-E-K. Benjamin, I want to uh, stray away from your book for a second and and just read something that you tweeted on September the 1st of this year, because I read it and uh, went, wow, that's that's bold. That's a great stand. And I would just love to know kind of what was behind it. So let me read it. And then I would love to, for you to just kind of let us kind of behind the curtain of this tweet. You said, friends, I would love to use Twitter more, but my heart can't take it. I'll spend a few minutes on the first of each month seeing what I missed. Then I'm shutting it down for the next 30 or 31 days. Text me if you want to talk. So uh, <laughs> why would you make that decision and how has it gone for you? Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> I, you know, it's funny to hear your own tweets read back. Um, I hoped it was, yeah, not a, it, it was sent with a little bit of brokenness and but a little bit of I have real friends that have my real phone number and I, I'm happy to talk at any time. Uh, and so, you know, what, what came out of that is, um, I, again, I mentioned this very briefly in the last segment, but I was on sabbatical this summer. And so I didn't feel the responsibility to be knowing of what's going on. Um, and I don't think I was able to really rest fully. And so throughout August, I just turned off every social media, didn't even check them. And, uh, it was just so life-giving. And mm-hmm. so what, what I just felt is through, um, th- there is this pull in social media, not unlike a, you know, a car that's out of alignment, except with a car out of alignment, it's like unintentional and you have to get it fixed. Social media, I feel like is pulling you towards one ditch or another. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have the energy to hold the car, so to speak, straight. Yeah. And that's what, that's where that came from. And then I'll just say, like, I just had my birthday the other day. One of the things we do as a family is we just you know, thank the Lord for the person in front of them, try and practice giving and receiving compliments at the dinner table. And my wife just mentioned what it's it's meant for our family, for me to not be on social mm. media and how that's impacted me in the home uh, for mm. the better. And so it just re-underscored, yeah, this is, this is a good thing, even though there's a loss involved in it. Wow. Happy birthday, by the way. <laughs> um, Benjamin, I, I, I'm especially, I'm an author myself, so I'm thinking, man, he went off Twitter right as he was promoting a book? Like, this is <laughs> so counterintuitive, but I love that you made that decision. And I don't want to get into your family business too much, but I would love to hear, like, just hearing your wife said that, what are some of the benefits you've seen from taking some time away? Yeah, I can't say I still don't check emails or, or, uh-huh. or text sure. messages standing sure. in the kitchen for too much. But but really, there's not that pull. Like when I'm home, the phone can go down. And it always could have. I just really wasn't that great at doing that, uh, what I could have always been doing. So for me, it was like, th- th- this may seem weird, but th- there's this Old Testament story where they've got this bronze snake and it's with Hezekiah. And it's the bronze snake back from like the, the, the Exodus story. And it's, it's, you know, people look to it and they're saved and whatnot. Anyway, 
there's this line under Hezekiah's reign that they're still worshiping it and he has to smash it. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. the ideal would have been, he just could have kept the snake and like, it would have been a trophy to the Lord's grace and, and salvation, but it w- became a stumbling block. So they just had to fully, okay. The ideal would be to use this as a good tool to, to glorify God, but in some situations you got to put it away. And for me, I, I was too probably, I don't know, weeks the right word, but I just couldn't do it. So I, I, I like uh, just being more fully present with my family. Love That's that. great. Uh, so getting back to your book, uh, Benjamin, it's called Shepherd and Sheep, Essays on Loving and Leading in a Local Church. We talked about uh, in the first part of the interview about the concept of a shepherd, but let's talk about sheep because you said also uh, we as pastors, we are also first and foremost sheep. Those in the church are sheep. Help people understand that that's not really a uh, a nice description. Like the, to be <laughs> called a sheep is not exactly uh, complimentary. Help people understand that who may not know that. Yeah, that's that's a fun one because yeah, there in Chicago, there's probably not a, a lot of urban sheep farmers. I suppose <laughs> uh, maybe they're getting getting out in the city limits. But I yeah, we're going to probably preach through Psalm 23 for our Easter series mm. coming up. So I'm doing a little reading and poking around there. But to be called a sheep is is yeah you. you <laughs> um, yeah, how do you want to say it? You, you need a lot of help. <laughs> and you, might, you, you might bite things that are there to help you. Um, you, you people that are there to help you, 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 you follow the herd. You might walk into dangerous places. And so you really need in that Psalm 23 imagery, uh, the rod and the staff of the shepherd to lead you to still waters. You, you, mm. you are, um, as we, our, our kind of tagline around here is weak, um, to see the weak, wounded, and wayward enjoy the living Jesus. And so we to be a sheep is to be weak, wounded, and wayward. Mm. And Benjamin, I, I'm going back to something we talked about in our conversation with you. When um, we re- we read that line, either something like, I, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but either I'm not called to pastoral ministry or I'm doing something wrong here. Um, I'm assuming you moved past that. Mm-hmm. And I would love, I guess, just to hear for all of our listeners that are in ministry or in leadership in the past 18 months have really worn them down. Um, I guess what words of life would you speak over them mm-hmm. to tell them to keep going? So for me, what happened is I got to the place where the elders, I left a late elder meeting and they said, you know, this is the letter we need to write to the church about our COVID stuff that we're going to do in this, you know, at this iteration. And uh, I remember thinking, I could send this letter <laughs> or I could send them my resignation letter. And wow. that that's how low it got for me. Um, I don't, now this is all public. I've told the staff that uh, now I guess I told more than our staff, but um, <laughs> I, I, I feel far enough away from it, but I didn't do it because I knew it was sin. I, and sin in the, it's not a sin to quit pastoring you. That, that, I don't mean that, but for me, I had nothing to go to. It was only, I'm afraid I'm walking away. I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. And, and what I did instead is I wrote the silly COVID letter and we moved on. And I, the next elder meeting, I sent the staff home and I just pulled the guys aside and said, I, it's not broke, um, but, but it's not working. And I don't know how to fix it, but I think it can be. Will you mm-hmm. and I, can we work together? And, and, and so for me, it was a way to say, I don't have a lot of health left, mm-hmm. but with what little health I have, I'm going to put it in this direction. And I'm asking for you to see if we can get there together. And they, they, they heard that with such kindness and such tenderness mm. um, that it really propelled what was this next nine months and really a year long of healing and growing and learning what it meant to be a pastor again in a new role. Mm. So I, I think, yeah, what encouragements of life, it, God can do something special mm. if, if you will 
take what little health you might have, these little embers, this, this, this promise, and I, there's an essay about this in the book, about the bruise reed he will not break, um, the smoldering wick he's not going to put out. Like, it would be so easy to do. You just, you just pinch that little flame, and it goes out. And yet the Lord's desire is to get on his hands and knees and blow those embers until they're aflame again. Mm. And he would love to do that for you, Mr. or Mrs. Pastor, ministry leader. Mm. Absolutely. That's a good word. Let's end there. Because again, if you're out there struggling, uh, especially as we talk specifically in the pastor world, I think uh, Benjamin has given you a good word, like it's kind of a refreshment. And again, if you want to hear more of that, go get his book, Shepherd and Sheep, Essays on Loving and Leading in a local church. Benjamin, it's always fun to have you on. Oh, let me remind people they can find your blog, fanandflame.com, and also on Twitter, at Benjamin Verbacek. That's at Benjamin Verbacek. Benjamin, thanks so much, man. It's always great having you on. Yeah, great. Hey, I'll just say one thing. Anybody subscribes on that blog uh, and, and they shoot me an email from there, I will be happy to send them the, the ebook version of that book for free and just, oh, nice. just say thanks for listening. So I love being on your show. Love what you guys are doing. Thanks so much, Benjamin. It's always good to have you on. We're glad that you're joining us today. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. We often talk about the dangers of Twitter, the darkness of Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And those are uh, relevant things to discuss. But let me read to you a story that a pastor wrote basically on Twitter, a thread that he had uh, that I just so much appreciate. This is a pastor. uh, His I have no idea who he is. His name is Zach Lambert out of Restore Austin. It looks like it's called. So let me just read the thread here because, Aubrey, I think you're, it's going to um, remind you that there are good people doing good things in mm. humanity. But then also, this is what the church is supposed to do. So uh, let me read the story. This is okay. a Twitter thread from Zach Lambert's uh, Twitter feed. He wrote, he's a pastor. So yesterday, he wrote, yesterday, I spoke to a senior adult who recently visited our church. She's confined to a wheelchair, so I asked her about her current mobility. She said, I have a ramp, but I'm waiting to get it installed by city services. How long have you been waiting, I asked. She answered, 18 months. Oh, my word. I couldn't believe it. I said, are you serious? 18 months? She said that COVID made things worse, but really long waits are typical in that world. She went on to tell me that most of her family passed away years ago, and she only has one friend in Austin. Oh. How can we help? I asked. She said, maybe you could put in a good word for me with city services. And I asked her then, could we just come over to your house with a group of handy people from our <laughs> church and install it? Uh-huh. After a long pause, I could hear her choking back tears. And she said, you'd do that? Of oh. course, I said. That's what the family of God is all about. She replied, I haven't had a family in a very long time. I think God knew how badly I needed one, and that's why he sent me to your church. Mm. This is why, despite all its issues, he uh, this is Zach saying, I can't leave local church. We're going to be able to install a ramp, pull-up bars, and other mobility items at her home. We're also on getting her a large print Bible because her eyesight's fading, a better solution for mail as she can't get to her mailbox, and setting up a visiting schedule. I'm still convinced that there is nothing like the local church when it's healthy, inclusive, justice-driven, 
and Jesus centered. And he goes on to say later, y'all are saying such kind things in the replies, but I want to make something clear. This is not about me. This is just how our church family operates. Church members have been DMing me all day, offering time and money to help her after reading this. I love our folks so much. Oh, so awesome. That story like makes me want to ball my eyes out. So beautiful. Isn't Mm -hmm. that right? Well, what do you love about the story? And then we're going to try to spin it to isn't this what the church is supposed to be? Mm-hmm. How is this like the best of the church? But why does this make you so emotional? You know, I do. I just think this is when the church is at its best. Like when there are hurting people with needs, everyone just jumps to the um, jumps to the opportunity when it's presented. And whether that's actually physically going to build a ramp or actually like setting up those visitations or Get the print, the large print Bible. I mean, I just think people, especially in church, really want to jump beside and and stand beside and care for people. And that's a that's a small story if you yes. think about it mm-hmm. in the scale of so many stories, right? Um, yeah. And and the way the church partners with people who are hurting. This is a small little moment, but I do think this is when the church is the most beautiful and the most church, like just being good neighbors to this precious lady. And for her saying, I don't have a family, but all of a sudden, like God puts the lonely in families. And I, I don't know that you just hear so many negative stories. And Brian, you and I cover them a lot, right? Yes, yes. Negative stories about the church quite a bit. And so I think just to hear the church being the church in this simple but profound way is moving. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things that jumped out to me immediately about this story. The first is this. Uh, oftentimes, without knowing, we think, well, the government's going to take care of people. Mm. And this reminds you that uh, while the government was probably at some point going to build her ramp or put it in, she'd been waiting for 18 months. Can you yeah. imagine? Like that's almost that's just a little bit less time than COVID's been going on. <laughs> like, uh, you know, seriously, this is, seriously. And I doubt anybody was sitting back going, well, let's just let that lady sit. You know, I think they probably had a backlog and they can't handle all the needs in that community. And so. Uh, it's mistaken for us as the church just to go, oh, you know, there's services that are going to take care of that. There's um, agencies that do that. So that's one. Uh, two, and this might sound uh, a little strange to say, but I think it, requ- it it's important. This lady doesn't have that really much to offer to the church yeah. in terms of um, money, in terms of um, you know what? I don't think she's going to be serving in children's ministry, likely. You know what? Right, 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 right. And you might be like, well, that doesn't matter. And I totally agree with you. But sometimes we put a lot of our energy mm. only towards those mm. who can move the ball forward. Isn't that true, Brian? Wow. And so uh, it shouldn't be that way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting it should be that way. But what I'm saying is... um either on purpose or subconsciously, that's often where all of our focus goes. All right, that person can run this program. That person can teach that class. This person can uh, be with the kids. And the people who fall through the cracks are the people uh, who are in need of help without much opportunity to kind of pay it back, if you will. But the church is meant to Mm. uh, help exactly the people like this. And we see the result in her life where she's like, I never had a family. And now I feel like I have a family. Beautiful. She only visited one time, it said. Like this was after her first time coming. Somebody who recently visited. So Aubrey, pastors out there or just people who go to church or just people who follow Jesus. 
practical, practical takeaways when we read a story like this, other than being just kind of inspired and moved? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like one is to like that. I you know, I don't know Zach Lambert from Adam, right? But one, he was um, present enough with this woman to not only greet her, but to ask her about her life, and then to do follow up, and then do more follow up. And I feel like that feels like just one really practical takeaway is know people well enough, new to your church, not new to your church. Um, to know their stories, know what they're going through, and then ask, like, what's the invitation from God in that? And then meet the need. I mean, literally, this is the hands and feet of Jesus right here. And it's only going to be a blessing in her life. And it then now here we are talking about it. I think the ripple effects of this story yeah. are going to be pretty powerful, too. You just did something completely unintentional that I found very funny. You said, I don't know Zach Lambert from Adam, like Adam Lambert, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're brothers, maybe. <laughs> I think, yes. I think this is a wonderful reminder uh, to all of us to go, okay, I have to get out of my own, just mm. just focus only on myself. Yes, I have to get out Brian. of just only kind of zero, zeroed in on who, what's going on in my world, on yeah. my calendar. Like, it seems like this didn't just happen as a conversation, but he reached out to her later. And then, you know what, Zach Lambert or whoever deals with it, this in his church then had to get the supplies, round up the people, right, right. give up at least a Saturday, yep. if not more days. Yep. There, there was sacrifice in here, but I would suggest uh, that this is the church being the church, mm. that this is what it's meant to look like. And I like, it's the beauty of Twitter on the good side, because this was you would never know these stories. It's just a small church going, hey, uh, this is what we could do. Or maybe it's not a small church, but it's a, it's a local church. Local church, And yeah. then it begins to spread. So uh, challenge us, encourage us. Uh, hopefully, uh, we could be more and more the church as people are hurting. We're really glad that you joined us today. Thanks for being with us. We're going to be back tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. Going to be a great show. We hope that you are here with us. For Aubrey Sampson. I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.